Welcome to Up My Hockey with Jason Padolan, where we deconstruct the NHL journey, discuss what it takes to make it, and have a few laughs along the way. I'm your host, Jason Padolan, a 31st overall draft pick who played 41 NHL games, but thought he was destined for a thousand. Learn from my story and those of my guests. This is a hockey podcast about reaching your potential. Hello there, and welcome back to the Up My Hockey podcast for episode number 46. Uh, yeah, or welcome to the Up My Hockey podcast, I should say. I, I'm sure some of you are listening for the first time. And for those of you who are, a big happy hello and welcome to a podcast that is growing, uh, that we're, we're seeing numbers increase every week. And I welcome you uh, to the show. I hope it's something that you enjoy, something you find value in. And uh, I know today's guest is going to provide some of that value by the name of Rick Vive. Rick Vive is somebody that I was able to watch growing up. You know, I'm 44 years old now. Uh, Rick Vive came onto the scene in the early 80s. He was part of the 79 draft class, one of the highly uh, regarded uh, draft classes of all time, the 79 draft class, where he went fifth overall in that class. I think he had 76 goals as a junior in his draft year, got drafted by the Vancouver Canucks and made the team uh, as as a young man, as a 20-year-old uh, that next fall, where he was quickly traded to the Toronto Maple Leafs. Uh, we cover that, but he shone with the Leafs. He was there in the Harold Ballard era. He ended up scoring 50 goals three seasons in a row. Uh, he had 157 goals over a 231-game span, uh, a feat that's never been uh, completed before in Maple Leaf history. So as old as the Maple Leafs are, Rick Vive is the only player to ever score 50 goals for that organization. Uh, that is that is high, high accolades for a player. Uh, Rick wore the captain there at 22 years old. Uh, there was some controversy with Rick throughout his career. He has talked about some of that controversy and about his career in his recent book that he just released this year called Catch-22. Uh, uh, that by all accounts sounds like it's a great read. I haven't had the chance to read it yet. Uh, this interview came on me pretty quick, so I didn't have a chance to do some homework with the book. But uh, I, I've I've read the reviews and I and I hear it's a it's a great read. So for anyone thinking of Christmas gifts uh, right now, last minute ones, go out there and grab that. But Rick is uh, he's a classy guy. You know he he uh, he tells it like it is. He's a true competitor. He played that way. He coached that way. And I think he lives that way. I think he's always fighting. He's always battling. And, uh, and that comes through loud and clear this, in this interview. So for some of you younger players that you know, maybe don't know the name, uh, you should. You know, It's something that we should be aware of. Those that came before us uh, is important. It's relevant. I know it's much easier to follow today's current players and the stars there. But the stars of, of yesteryears, the stars of, of those who were playing when maybe you weren't born, uh, those stories matter because it's the, it's the reason why players like Connor McDavid and Austin Matthews get a chance to play for these teams and to make the money that they're making because guys came before them and grew the game. And, uh, and yeah, we need to recognize that. And plus, I mean, there's stories from all eras that we can learn from. And, and Rick, is, Rick is an example of that because not only did he live it as a player, did he live it as a 22-year-old captain in Toronto under the lights of, of that entire microscope? But he also went on to coach, and uh, and he had you know he has a lot of perspective on the game that is super valuable. So, without further ado, I'm going to bring you Toronto's only 50-goal man, 
uh, goal scorer of over 400 goals in the NHL. How many is it here? I got to open up my open up my stat sheet. 441 NHL goals in 876 games. Uh, he was known as a guy that would compete. He was known as a guy who would get gritty, who would do what it takes to win, to score the goal, um, to to you know to get that puck out of the corner. And uh, and I enjoyed spending time with him today. So here he is. My conversation with Rick Five. Okay, we are live. We're back for my hockey episode 46. We have Leaf Legend and uh, my alumni winger on the uh, on the podcast. 50 goal man, Rick Vive. Thanks so much for being here, Rick. Oh, it's great. It's uh, you know what? I mean, we're we have a we don't have much to do, and I enjoy doing this and. Uh, I'm uh, glad you reached out to me, and I'm happy to be here. Awesome, awesome, great to have you. Uh, I know you're kind of uh, like you said, we're in lockdown a little bit. The alumni, the alumni events aren't happening. I know you're a big fan of them and participating in, in them. Uh, really loved your energy when I was there, able to play with you over here on the on the West Coast. But you have a book that just came out, and you're kind of doing a publicity tour right now. Is it? Is uh, it feel like you don't have enough hours in the day right now to get it all in? <laughs> Well, there is days where they're longer than others, and uh, like there's sometimes where I'm on doing uh, interviews or, or whatnot from like eight in the morning until four or five in the afternoon. <laughs> you get a little break in between some of them, but you know what? It, it, it's necessary because we're not getting out doing public signings and, and that sort of thing. So this is kind of one of the necessary things in order to, to help sales. Sure, of course. Was this something you always knew you were going to do? Write the book, um, I mean? You know what? No, not necessarily. I, I started thinking about it maybe about eight, eight years ago, and I had a lot of people asking me, you know, why don't you, or they wanted to write a book with me, and I said, well, no. I said, you know, there's two things. One, I'm not going to hold back anything about my life and, and about my career or anything that happened during that time. And the only guy I was going to write it with was Scotty Morrison because he, I trust him and he's a good friend of mine. And uh, we talked about it last fall and then met with uh, Penguin Random Publishing House and, and we got it all put together and started in October and then finished the end of April. So it was a, it was a pretty long process, actually. I was going to say, I mean, that's a big, a lot of people... I know have kind of write a book on their bucket list, you know, whether it be a, a memoir or whether it be an autobiography or, or even just a, a fiction novel. Uh, but it's hard to get pen to paper sometimes and to follow through and get it all done. Was that one of the bigger challenges you've had so far in your, in your uh, experience on this earth here? Well, no, it, the, the only problem I had was remembering things and remembering certain dates and so on. And so I had to rely pretty heavily on my wife, Joyce and, uh, uh, you know, we're coming up on 40 years uh, buried, so um, I had to rely on her for some dates. And even my sister, who's a year older than me, had to do some digging and get some dates and, and you know, facts and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. so that was kind of the, the tedious part of it, but um, I, I enjoyed every bit of it. And, uh, you know, I did it primarily because I wanted people to understand that, you know, because I think a lot of people... You know, we'll have a, a, a thought that, you know, you played 13 years in the National Hockey League and everything's perfect, your life was great, and now you're a multimillionaire, which is 
so far from the truth. And I just wanted to let people know that, you know, if they're going through problems uh, like I did, that you're able to overcome those challenges and get through them. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, everyone needs inspiration. Uh, well, especially now, right? I mean, everything, yeah. everyone's going through stuff right now, and it's a great time for that book to come out because any type of you know, motivation, inspiration um, that we can have and draw from uh, is, benefit, is beneficial. With, with the book, um, and, and we talked earlier, I mean, I just, uh, the way this interview happened so quick, I didn't have a chance to get my hands in the book, so I haven't read it, but I did read a few reviews. I did read some clips from it uh, in the lead up here, and it, it sounds like, you were, for lack of a better word, an open book, and uh, and you you shared you shared all, um, named some names and some points. Has there been any kind of I don't know, backlash or anything that's come up from it since it's been live from either ex teammates or ex people you've been around? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> um, uh, I haven't really heard from anybody, and nothing really has come up. Uh, and you know what, my teammates, I never really said a whole lot about my teammates because. You know, I, somebody asked me recently, or, or not too long ago, uh, you know, did you hate any of the guys you, you ever played with uh, over your 13 or 14 years pro? And I said, you know, I said, first of all, hate's a pretty strong word, uh, so I wouldn't say I hated anybody. But I said, I can count on one hand the guys that I disliked or maybe just didn't get along with that well. And maybe because we're different people, and uh, so, but I got along great with a lot of my teammates, and um, you know, in the book, there really isn't any negative things about any of my teammates because yeah. most of it was all positive. I can relate to that. You know, now that you say that, I never really reflected on it like that before. But uh, you know, I, I played on sixteen different pro teams, played for ten years, something like that, and uh, I mean, I. Really, I can't think of a guy that, you know, that stood out as being just a huge jerk or somebody that, you know, rubbed me the wrong way. It just seemed like we always were blessed maybe within this game to to attract a type of person that, you know, we got along with and we, we all kind of respected each other in our own ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, uh, I don't know. I don't know about the other sports. I can't speak to them, I guess. But in, in the experience in hockey, uh, the guys are all usually – really good guys and and we all have a common goal and that's to win and you know so you go out every night uh 20 20 guys or in my case when i started we only dressed 19 and your goal was to go out and win on that particular night and then you know and back in my day we also went out together as a team we did everything together as a team so i think that was probably uh the best part about it was that you know, we got to know each other, we got to trust each other because we were out together all the time doing things and having meals and having a few cocktails. And uh, and that that's kind of what brought us all together even closer. You mentioned, uh, I've heard you speak before about the 50 goal seasons, and I want to get into that, but just because you mentioned winning and losing and how it is so paramount, I think, in our, in our sport. And again, maybe more so than other sports, like, like I would say baseball, for instance. It seems, I mean, you lose a game in baseball, not a big deal there's 162 of them right you're going to lose some games and it seems like the mentality about it's different uh but with hockey i remember being in junior and i had brian maxwell and that was like the first time where i was really introduced to the idea that it is not a happy place in a hockey locker room if you've lost a game and it was like that culture was like slammed into us like whether it was on the bus afterwards whatever the case was like it was not allowed to be happy practice was 
was unruly, right? It was agitated. He wanted people to be mad. And, uh, and from that point on, it was like, it was just sort of kept being bred in that, you know, I mean, it's not a happy place if, if you're losing. Did, did you relate to that as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was uh, one of those things that, uh, I mean, like you say, that baseball has 162 games. I imagine NFL is very similar to hockey because they have very few games. And we only had, uh, well, when I started, we played, uh, I think it was 78 or 76. So, yeah, I mean, every game is so important. And then, you know, you lump everything together. And at the end of, at the end of 80 games or 78 or 82, and if you haven't accomplished making the playoffs and gotten yourself set in a, in a position where you can succeed, nobody, nobody's happy about that. And, uh, you know, you're pretty grumpy about losing a game afterwards, and so are the coaches, for that matter. <laughs> Some of the guys I had were really grumpy, too. Right. Yeah, that's what I mean. I, I, I think in today's game, talking with the coaches now, like, I mean, obviously there's still, I mean, the NHL is about winning. It's a winning league. You need to win. You need to win to get your job. You need to win for a lot of things. Put people on the stand so you want results. That hasn't changed. But I think the seems like the personalities, maybe, like a bit of the culture around that has changed a little bit. Yeah, I, but as I far as it, like how bad can we get? Yeah, I, I think it's changed a little bit. Um, I don't think it's really changed that much. I think you know, but coaches today are a little bit different in that you know that they'll come in and it depends on how you play too. I mean, you could lose a game, you know, three two or two one, but you played a great game and and it was just one of those nights where things didn't go your way. So the coach would come in and say, listen, hey, guys, you know, we played well. We can do a little bit better, but let's put this aside and let's move on and get ready for the next one. And I, I think that's probably, uh, you know, how things go today as opposed to our day where, you know, coaches would flip out and throw things around the room and <laughs> that sort of thing. Even if you right. played a good game and lost, for them it was still, well, because they, they wanted to keep their job. And, I always felt that way as a player myself, personally. I hated losing. I, I, I hated losing more than I liked winning, to be quite honest with you. And I, uh, I couldn't, you know, uh, hold back sometimes. And, you know, it was one of those things that, that I had in my DNA, I guess, from when I was a kid. Right. Did you, so you went from player, being, hating losing as a player. I just think it's an issue in evolution because then you're also a parent, you know, with kids that were playing hockey, and then you're also a coach. Did you, like, did you handle the win-loss scenario differently in all those scenarios, do you think? Um, yeah, I think I did. I think with my boys, I, I think, you know, I, I didn't really get into it too much with them. I mean, I know that I knew that they were upset that they lost, so I didn't want to, you know, make things worse. Uh, I wanted them to know that, you know, I was there if they wanted to talk to me. With, we didn't really have a whole lot of conversations after games. I mean, uh, it was not something I wanted to, you know, Katrina, uh, every every shift they had or, or something they did or didn't do. I wanted them to learn from their coaches and learn like I did and, and grow up loving the game and realizing when they played well, when they didn't play well, and maybe what they could have done or, or should have done. So I, I didn't get too involved. As a coach, it was a little bit different. At first, 
it was difficult for me because I wasn't out there on the ice doing it and there was nothing I could do. All I could do was put the guys on the ice and it was up to them. So that made it a little bit tougher at first. And then it got a little bit better after my first year. I, I, I realized that I had to communicate better with the players and, uh, and understand what they were going through and kind of be a little bit more subtle with what the things I said and, and uh, not be explosive and that sort of thing. Do you, you, you mentioned the word, um, well, you, you alluded to self, self-awareness when you're talking about your boys, that you wanted to, them to know if they had a good game or not, right? Being able to personally be accountable to, to their uh, performance. I think that's a really interesting tool for players because you would have seen that as a, as a player yourself and then I'm sure as a coach where some guys just don't have a good self-awareness toolkit, right? Like they think they had a great game and maybe they didn't. Um, as a, as a parent, how would you go about, uh, you know, challenging your boys uh, to increase their self-awareness skills? Uh, you know what? I, I think mainly it was kind of like the drive home, for instance, after the game was kind of like a time for if they wanted to say anything or they wanted to ask me anything, which a lot of times they did. Most of the time they did. And, you know, if they did play a good game, I would tell them, I, you know, and if they didn't play a good game, I'd say, well, I didn't think you worked as hard as you probably could have today. You didn't put as much into it as you probably should have. And I think that's why you maybe didn't have a good game. I, I always kind of, it wasn't so much about what they were doing as far as on the ice. It was more about how hard did you want to win and how hard did you play? To me, that was the most important thing for my kids was if you're going to play a game or you're going to play a sport, you got to put 100% into every single game. Yeah, every single game is not going to be great, but at least I expect you to give 100%. Good for you, yeah. Uh, I, I think we all, and we'd already talked about being results-driven, right, in a win-loss scenario. Um, it, it, it becomes about results and not about the process, you know, of what actually happened on the ice. And sometimes as players, we get caught up in the goals and the assists and the results as well instead of the process of what it takes to get those goals and assists because sometimes we're rewarded with points when maybe we shouldn't be, and other times we're not rewarded when we have a good effort. So um, when I'm talking to my players, I 100% agree, Rick, is like, yeah, take care of what you can take care of which is your effort, right? Which is your attitude, which is these types of things. And then hopefully that's going to correlate to you on the score sheet or however it is for you to be identified as being a good, uh, a good player on the stat sheet. Absolutely. And I think, uh, I don't know. I, I think I was born with that. I think to be quite honest with you, I just, I, I, I even minor hockey when I was a kid growing up, I hated losing. And I always felt that, you know, I, I whatever the coaches said, um, I, I just felt that I had to go out and give every single ounce that I had in my body at that particular time. I wasn't worried about, you know, what I was doing as far as shooting or passing or, you know, any systems we had, which we didn't have very many, obviously, uh, playing at that point. For me, it was all about, I got to give everything that I possibly can to be the best player I can on that team and help that team win. And if I didn't feel I did that, I, I was disappointed in myself. And, uh, you know, so I knew that, okay, next time I got to be better. That's awesome. I, I had a conversation with a, one of my clients recently about 
internal motivators and external motivators you know and when we're when we have those intrinsic motivators like you're talking about that when you leave the rink you're just disappointed in yourself uh let alone what the coach thinks or the fans thinks or the reporters thinks or any of that crap you know like you your your biggest uh, litmus test is yourself and when you can grow grow that idea right of what the reason what the standards are for rick vive for instance you know when you hold them in, in such high regard the the biggest person or the last person you want to disappoint is yourself Absolutely. And I, I think I carried that on for my whole career. And then even in the coaching, I, it was the same thing. I, uh, you know, I was always worried about just how good I was on that particular night, how hard I played. And I didn't worry about anything else. I didn't worry about the other team or what they were doing. Although I did, I, it's funny, I, I, uh, when I got traded to Chicago, we got our first sports psychologist and we started doing these things and then I realized that you know I had been visualizing from the time I was like 12 years old you know about who we were playing that particular night the goalie the defenseman that was playing on my side on the other team and I carried that over uh, in the junior and then in the pro and I was able to do that I was able to block out anything that I could hear outside and uh I could hear only the coach telling us who's up, who's not up. And then when I was on the ice, that I could hear my teammates. So I I don't know. I guess I was just very fortunate that I had the ability to do those things. And I carried that over. So, you know, yeah, I, I didn't really, I didn't really look at everything that happened around me during a game or anything. I just, I, I focused on myself and, and, the effort that I gave and, and how hard I played. And, and it, I knew that if I played as hard as I possibly could and, and did everything 100%, that I was going to have success and I was going to help the team. So, you know, I didn't worry about what my teammates were doing or anything. I didn't get on them or say anything or anything. It was just, it was all about me being the best possible player I could on every single night. And then I knew that if that was the case, that everybody else was going to probably start to follow and uh, then we were going to have success. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, was, I definitely wanted to talk about uh, your captaincy because uh, you wore the C there. And, and I assume when you're speaking, there was times where you had the C and there was times in your career where you didn't have, have the C on your chest. Did you, did you handle your philosophy there with that, your approach, whether you were a captain or not? Yeah, absolutely, and uh, like I, I, but I've never been a, a you know, a, a stand-up, yell, scream, rah, rah type guy. I, I, I was always pretty quiet in the room because I was focused on getting myself ready, and I didn't want any distractions and so on. Uh, yeah, I didn't get up and yell. There was times where I get up and spoke and just, you know, matter of factly, just, you know, it was, it was a. It wasn't a yell or a scream. It was just like, guys, like, okay, you know, we're only down two. We have a period and a half or two periods left. You know, we can get this done. But every single guy in here has to contribute and has to go out and give 100% of whatever they have. And I said, I know that everybody isn't at the same level. But if everybody gives 100% to doing what they're supposed to do out there, we're going we're gonna to be successful. And uh, I had some good guys... Uh, like in Toronto, when I was captain, I had Borea Salmon sitting right beside me who would back me up on a lot of things. And, you know, so that 
that's when you have successes, when teammates are willing to back you up and stand up and say, you know what, yeah, you know what, he's right. we we got to give a little bit more. And and when when that all comes together, then you're going to have success. I think people, and when I say people, I just mean maybe general public, people who haven't been involved in, in sports at a high level, I mean, in a team environment, have this have this theatrical movie like idea of what the captain is, right? It's the guy who stands up in the room and makes the big speech and everyone's jumping around. And, you know, although there is a few captains, I can remember like that very rarely are they actually like that, you know, like it's usually, it's usually it's a person that leads by example. Like you said, they're, they're really dialed into the professionalism of what it takes for them to be their best. And that example of leadership is, is more so what these guys are following rather than the words of the leader. Do, do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, I was one myself that, that believed that leading by example was more important than saying anything. And, and, you know, so uh, I always felt if I went out and I did what I needed to do and gave 100%, that everybody on the bench or, or on the ice with me or whatever it might be, they're going to look at that and they're going to say, you know, holy cow, like our captain is, you know, he's getting banged around out there. He's going into the corners to get pucks. He's, you know, he's, he's standing in front of the net, taking a lot of abuse to, for our power play to work and that sort of thing. You know, I think that's more important than standing up in the room and, and saying anything to the players. And because I believe that if, if, if you're a leader, whether you're captain or you're one of the better players on the team, if, if you're going out doing that, they're, they're, Sooner or later, they're going to adapt to it, and they're going to they're going to go out and do the exact same thing. Now, as a young leader, uh, and we've seen it, you know, I mean, in other players, you've had the experience as being a 22 year old captain in the NHL. That in and of itself must be different than being a 32 year old captain in the NHL. Like, I, I think that there's probably more of an individual idea at that stage, right? I got to take care of myself. I can't necessarily worry about 19 other individuals on this team because that becomes a lot more of a responsibility. Do you, can you relate to that? Like having that C at 20, you know, I mean, we have to remember at 22, I should say like how most of us were at 22, you know, like that's, that's a, that's an interesting point in a lot of people's lives and to have the, you know, the, 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 representing a team in a, in a place like Toronto is a, is a massive responsibility. Can you walk us through what that was like for you? Well, uh, well, first and foremost, you know, I wasn't in a situation where I got asked to come up to the GM's room and everybody was there and they said, you know, we'd like you to be our, our next captain and, uh, you know, and, and then let me think about it. No, I, Harold Ballard came to me and said, you're our captain. So I was stuck into a, a catch-22 situation um, where I didn't think I was quite ready for it yet and the responsibility that goes with it. Uh, I, I thought I needed maybe another year or two in the league before I could take on that responsibility. But at the same time, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking if I say no, he's probably going to trade me, and which he probably would have. And mm -hmm. I wasn't ready for that. I didn't want to leave Toronto. I'd already been traded once. And I felt that, you know what, if I don't take it, he's going to trade me. So, you know, I took it and uh, knowing full well what the responsibilities were, and especially in a place like Toronto. Um, and again, Boria helped me a lot with that. He really did. He was, a, he was a great guy to be, have sitting right beside me. And we would talk about it sometimes at length, sometimes just short little things. And, 
you know, we, we had a, an older team at the time, but then within a year, we got a whole lot younger. We brought in a lot of young players, which made it a lot easier for me because now I was 23, 24. They were 18, 19. They would listen, you know, whereas a guy 29 or 30 would kind of sit there and go like, you know, what's he talking about? I don't need to listen to a 22-year-old tell me what to do, you know, right. that sort of thing. And so it became easier. And, uh, it, and again, most of it was going out and doing it on the ice rather than in the dressing room. Right, yeah. And, I, and that the was the point thing, of – oh, sorry, the go other ahead. Thing, sorry, the other thing that, that I would do is I wouldn't say much to players in the room except, you know, I might say to a guy, let's go have lunch. And over lunch, I might, you know, talk to him about the things that I'm concerned about with what he's doing. And rather, you know, rather than standing up and doing it in front of all the rest of the team, I thought it was best take the guy aside, have lunch or do whatever, and then explain what you, you want to get through to him. Yeah. No, I was going to say if, if, uh, if you had any of those quieter conversations, you know, like it's one thing yeah. to address the team as a whole, but it's another kind of to go sit beside a guy in his stall and, you know, just kind of let him know where you yeah. see it or where you think he can help or be, or be a better asset for the team. And it sounds like you were doing that. Um, you mentioned your trade uh, as a rookie. And first of all, actually, maybe we'll go even back just to touch on the draft a little bit because you were fifth overall year a year. You had an amazing year in Sherbrooke. Um, filling the net full of goals and your draft class was ridiculous. Like what a, what a draft year that was. And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not a draft day, uh, you know, statistician or statistician, but that must be down there as one of the best draft draft classes of all time, I would say. Yeah. I think, uh, I think when they do, you know, you see it on TSN or all these different stations where they all come up with the best draft years and, and I think they always include the 79 draft in one of the top 10 of all time. And, uh, you know, if not top five. So yeah. I mean, when you look at the guys who were drafted that year, it was incredible. I mean, like probably two thirds of the guys in that draft went on and had unbelievable careers, long careers, and were great players in the national hockey league. And, uh, you know, uh, so it's always in the top five or 10 when, when, uh, people put together those those uh, those lists of the top draft years. Yeah, I was checking it out. I mean, thousand gamer after thousand gamer after thousand gamer, and uh, you know, big big names, Hall of Fame Hall of Fame careers in there. So uh, to be recognized in the top five of that class was 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 crazy. And I mean, even the way it turned out, I mean, it wasn't uh, you were right probably where you were supposed to be. I know your career got a little bit cut short with some injuries and stuff, but you're a hell of a player while you were while you were there. But I wanted to touch on. When you made that jump, so, I mean, fifth overall at the time, did you feel, did they tell you, like, what was the communication like going into camp that first year for you to Vancouver? Did, did you think in your head that you were going to stick on the team? Did they tell you you were going to stick on the team, or did you have to battle for a spot there? Um, they didn't really talk to me a whole lot about it. Uh, Harry Neal was a coach in Vancouver, and Jake Milford was our general manager, but he was sick at the time, uh, not very healthy. So uh, Harry, Harry was kind of entrusted with both of those roles and you know he really never sat me down and, and said anything I mean all I heard was in the paper at training after camp that he said he beat me in the five mile run uh, in training camp and that sort of thing and I was out of shape and you know first of all I don't even know if Harry could have ran five miles back then to be honest with you let alone beat me and uh, <laughs> you know so we kind of got off on the on, on a wrong foot because he he was 
accusing me of all these things and, and partying too much and that sort of thing. And, you know, what? I, yeah, I went out a lot. I went out, Jack McElhargy had a bar in Burnaby. I lived with Glenn Hanlon in Burnaby. So, yeah, I went there a lot of nights because that's where everybody was going. And I, not necessarily did I drink all those nights. You know, and some nights I might have had a couple or there was nights where I had more, well more than a couple. But there was a hell of a lot of nights where I went there and I didn't have anything to drink. And so I think the fact that I was there more than I should have been led him to believe that I was partying uh, way too much. And then the next thing you know, I'm sitting in the press box watching and then uh, then the trade happened. Interesting, because that's one thing that you know you and I have in common, and that's probably the only thing, is that we both got traded in our rookie year to the Toronto Maple Leafs um, as 20-year-olds. So uh, I, I personally was in the minors at the time. I played 19 games with Florida, and then I got traded out of, out of the minors. I'd just been sent down. And, and so I was in Greensboro, North Carolina, got the call. I, two hours later, I'm well, two hours later, I'm in an airport. The next day, I'm playing against the Philadelphia Flyers and Eric Lindros at Maple Leaf Gardens. And it was like the biggest whirlwind you could imagine for, uh, you know, being 20 years old. How, how was that for you? I know for me, it was, it was, it was almost too big to be honest, like going there to that place, uh, with that type of a microscope underneath you, you know, who, who we were all traded for. How, how did you take that? Like as a person, not necessarily as a player? Well, uh, well, first of all, when I, when I was told I was traded, I, it was devastating. It was, it really was. I mean, it was like all of a sudden, all these things are going through your head. You're thinking like, am I even going to be able to stay in this league very long? And how long am I going to be able to play? I mean, I've already been traded. It's my rookie year. Then I get to Toronto and uh, they, they sat us down and said, look, you're going to get every opportunity to play a ton here and you're going to play with good players. And they followed through with that. And then all of a sudden, you know, Toronto's a big market, obviously. Everybody knows it's kind of the mecca of hockey in, in the National Hockey League. But I thrived on that. I, I was a guy that loved that. I, I loved the attention that was put on me and, and the scrutiny day in and day out. And I, I thrived on that because, you know, that made me better because it, it pushed me, it pushed me, it pushed me. And, and well, no one was harder on anybody than myself. So the press couldn't be any harder on me than I was on myself. But that fueled me even more. I, I wanted to prove that, you know what, you're all wrong. And I think for me, going to Toronto was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in my career because it, it, it just pushed me beyond boundaries that I didn't even know that I, that I could get to. Awesome. That's amazing. Can we talk about maybe that conversation and, and, and them saying about the opportunity, which, which was a little bit in contrast to to where like they my own personal experience with coming to Toronto because that must have meant a lot to you as a player to hear that right to hear not only did you get let go you went from the devastation of being traded but now you land in a place where they like you feel appreciated and wanted and that you're going to get this opportunity that must have done a lot for your uh, self-esteem and your ego absolutely I mean it was it was the best word like I mean everybody wants an opportunity you know that everything in, in pro sports is about getting the opportunity of course, then you have to take advantage of that opportunity and you have to go perform and do the right thing. And just to hear that and then for them to follow through on it, it gave me the ability to, to grab a hold of that and, and take advantage of it and become what I did become in Toronto. And um, it, it's all about opportunity. And, and if you don't get an opportunity, you can't prove it. But 
if you're given that opportunity, well, then it's up to you as an individual to take a hold of that and become what you can be. For me, I think I became more than what I was expecting of myself. And then, of course, when that happened, then I expected more and more. And, uh, you know, then unfortunately, I mean, you score 53 years in a row. And then, you know, the next three or four years, you get 30 odd goals, 41 year. And then, uh, you know, it's expected of you every single year. And, and that's fine. I mean, I, I, I fed off of that. Right. Yeah, because when you and when you got there, and I mean the, the stats only say so much, and it's only what I can see. But I mean, you you show up there in Toronto, you get nine goals in twenty two games. I mean, that's a that's a forty goal year right there as a as a twenty year old rookie in in the league. I mean, that's a that's a pretty great start. You must have just started rolling right from the right from game one. Yeah, I was. Uh, well, I did actually. I scored two goals in my first game with with the Leafs, and then you know, and then things went pretty good for the rest of the season, and uh, I, I just felt really comfortable uh because like i said they gave me the opportunity i kind of took advantage of it and i said okay next year i gotta i gotta get better i gotta be better than i was even last year because they've given me this opportunity and i i can't let them down and that that's kind of how i felt about myself and 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 everything else and then you know the the following year i go out and get 33 and uh and then you know, 54, 51, 52. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, I kept pushing myself beyond the limits that I even thought that I had. Where does that come from? The sense of, of possibility, like this idea of, you know, how, how good can I be? Uh, where, where did you learn that? Did you, did, was that self-taught? Um, you know, how did that, where, how did that come about? You know, I think it started, actually, believe it or not, it started in Pee Wee. I had a real good coach in Pee Wee who was, uh, he had a hockey school. Alan Andrews had a big hockey school in in, Char- in PEI. Uh, Sidney Crosby went there. A whole bunch of guys uh, in the, from the Maritimes that played in the NHL went to his, his uh, hockey school. He was a real thoughtful man. And he, he, he was a, the only, well, one of the only coaches I had that would actually sit you down and talk to you like a human being and and explain things to you and so on and and from that moment on it, it kind of hit me that you know uh, you know yeah i because he talked about taking responsibility of your own play and just little things like that I, I mean and you're 12 years old listening to this guy telling you that and you're going like wow and then you know, it didn't really kick in for probably four or five years until I got to major junior. And then all of a sudden you reflect back on that and you remember that and you go, whoa, wait a minute. I remember those days when Alan talked to me about these things that I'm now facing. And then all of a sudden it just kicked in and that's, I said, okay, I got to follow what he told me and I got to, you know, I got to apply that to what I'm doing. Good for you. Yeah, I mean, in today's uh, language, I mean, a lot of people call that a growth mindset, right? And they actually teach growth mindset. That's something that I try and work with my clients on. And it's this, I, you know, this idea is that you know we can always get better if we want to put our intention and our focus on it. And and there really is no top shelf limit, you know. But we have to believe that. And as scoring fifty goals or thirty goals, you know, to believe that, you know, what there's something else there. How do I find that? You know, where where do I get that from? That's that's a mindset thing. I mean, that's not a that's not a skill thing. That's that's what's between your ears, I think, right? Yeah, absolutely. There's no question. I mean, the mind is so strong. I mean, it's like I don't think people realize 
how strong your mind can be when you put your when you put your mind to it. I guess that's a kind of a crazy way of putting it, but you know you got to believe in yourself. You got to believe in the in the ability that you have and, and what you're capable of. And you got, I mean, I never really set goals in that. Okay, I'm going to get X amount of goals or whatever. My goals were. I was going to try and be the best player on the ice every day, whether it was practice, whether it was games. Um, that was a mindset that I had, and, and I carried that for many, many years, thinking that, okay, results come after the work. And, you know, if you put that hard work in and be the best guy, on the hardest working guy on the ice every practice, every game, the results are going to come. And, uh, and of course, you're going to get different results based on, um, your ability, uh, you know, some guys are maybe, you know, 15, 20 goals, but they're good checkers, they're good penalty killers, they, they play a physical game, whatever the case might be, um, you got to understand that if you're, if you're the hardest working guy every single day in uh, practice in the games, you're going to be able to attain the goals that you set out for yourself or what the team sets out for you, and, uh, and you maybe even be able to get beyond that. With those goals that you said, and you mentioned the hardest working player, the best player on the ice, uh, do you mean relative to everyone on the ice, or was that yourself or both? No, I think it was both. I think it was, uh, I got to be the hardest working guy out of whatever, 21 or 22 guys on the ice in practice. Mm -hmm. And every single game, I got to be the hardest working guy out of both teams on the ice. And if I do that, then the results will come after that. I mean, yeah, unfortunately, you know, hockey and other sports are result-driven, and it's no different for coaches as it is for players. I mean, you see coaches go behind the bench and they don't have results, and two years later they're fired. Or Todd Reardon in Washington, I mean, he was there, what, one year, I think, or maybe two, after Barry Trotz won the Stanley Cup with them. And, basically the same team, but he couldn't get the same results out of them. So Barry had a way of getting the results out of the same players that he didn't have the ability to do. And, you know, then he was let go very early in his uh, coaching career in Washington. So, you know, it was, and that, but that's something that you had to be aware of every single day. You couldn't let your guard down for a day or else, you know, something bad could happen and you could have a real horrible day or a horrible game, and then that might carry over the next day. So you got to, you had to stay on top of that, and it, I did anyway. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, there's definitely higher stakes. You know, you, you need to protect what you got for sure, and the fact that you recognize that is pretty cool. When you talk about, I've talked about hard work uh, a bit on this on this platform, and and I think it's it's an interesting topic in the sense that there's not many guys that will leave the rink, and and you probably even saw this as a coach more so maybe even as a player, like when, when guys leave the rink, there's not going to be too many guys that raise their hand and say, yeah, I'm a pretty, I'm a pretty lazy player or I didn't, I didn't go, I didn't go hard today. Right. Like that's not something that most pros would admit to, but yet if you're sitting there watching that practice as the coach, you can pick out three or four guys that worked like that definitely stood out as being the hardest workers. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is everyone has this different standard of what hard work means to them. How do you develop that standard for you, and how would you get that out of players to elevate their expectations for themselves and give a little more? Um, communication, more than anything. Um, when I was coaching, I mean, it was one of the things I did. Every day, I picked three guys 
that I was going to have a conversation with that day after practice. And it wasn't necessarily all about hockey. Some of it sometimes was. I mean, if someone wasn't playing well or not working hard enough, you know, but it was, it was, it was communication. It wasn't get it, putting them down or yelling and screaming at them. It was, it was just talking things out. It was kind of like, you know, do you think, do you think that you worked hard enough uh, last night in the game or, or in practice today? And, you know, kind of let them tell you what they think was my, uh, the way I, I approached it was like, okay, I, I'm going to let him tell me what he thinks and then I'm going to tell him what I think. And more, than, more times than not, they would tell you exactly what you wanted to hear. And, uh, and that was just simple communication. I think communication is the key in coaching or even if you're a player, if you're going to communicate with one of your teammates, you got to do it in a way that it doesn't, you know, piss them off and get them angry. You got to do it in a way that uh, they give you the answers that you want to hear. And I, I think that's so important. And maybe not everybody can do it. I was able to do it, uh, fortunately. And, and it worked very, very well. Just want to take a short break from the conversation to once again extend my gratitude and my thanks uh, to all of you who are choosing to tune in today uh, and to share and to grow the podcast. You know, it, it's, it is growing and it's happening every week. And I, I hear just more and more from, from you all uh, sharing your appreciation and your thanks. And, uh, and that just motivates me to keep going because I love it. I love the conversations. It is a lot, a lot of work. I'm not going to lie. Uh, putting, putting the episodes together in, in, uh, in pre-production, the conversation itself and post-production to try and find the guests, uh, to make the, you know, to make the clips and the promos, but it's all worth it for me. If, people are getting value from it. If young players are seeing new perspectives, if parents are able to take some of the nuggets and apply it to their own parenting or their own coaching skills, uh, it's what it's all about. You know what I mean? It's about trying to give back uh, to the greater good of the game and the greater good of society. And, and I think having people share their stories as candidly as some of my guests do and like Rick is, uh, there really is opportunity there for, for the curious uh, athlete who wants to, wants to make inroads to the goals and dreams that they have. So thanks again, uh, you doing your part to listen, to subscribe, to share, to talk about it with your, with your inner circle, sharing it with your hockey teams all makes a difference. And, uh, and I'm appreciative. So at this, uh, at this time, uh, this episode's being released around the holidays, uh, 2020 during around Christmas. I am grateful. I am thankful and, uh, continue to listen and continue to share. Well, you know, what's interesting is we already talked about self-awareness and like trying to increase a player's self-awareness, I think is a great gift as a parent or as a coach. And, and what you just said there, asking them to give their opinion is increasing that skill for them, making them communicate to you, you know, what they felt inside. Maybe they were right sometimes, maybe they were wrong, but every time we, we flex that muscle and we put another rep in, in the self-awareness and the self-assessment, you're doing them a favor. Because I do think that's one of the biggest ways to increase your standards as a player is to be brutally honest with yourself and then try and find ways, you know, to, to, uh, to elevate. The next thing I'll, I'll, I just talked with David Quinn and he talked about what you just spoke about there is you not, you don't want to make people mad, you know, and you want to still be able to make people accountable. And, and he put it really succinctly. I thought he said one of the 
greatest virtues of leadership today is being able to balance likability and accountability. You want to be as likable as you can be while making people accountable. And I thought that was a pretty cool statement. It sounds like what you were trying to do, you know, 15 years earlier. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's not easy. It's, uh, you, you gotta, you gotta kind of thread lightly sometimes around certain topics and certain things that you want to get uh, across to the player. Uh, but I, I think the best approach is like, yeah, you, you know what, the, the, the one thing about coaching uh, or parenting or whatever it might be is that, you know, you, you love these guys, you love these kids, they, they you know, you love watching them go out and, and compete, same as your children, you love what they're doing, you, you try to raise them the best you can, and I think the best way to get anything out of them is just to communicate with them and, and be be the best that you can be as a, a person to them, and then also let them talk to you and, and explain what's going through their mind. And, and maybe what they say maybe is something that you can pick up on and say, oh, okay, well, if he feels that way, then maybe I gotta feel or try to approach him differently than everybody else. Because everybody's not the same, so you do have to approach every player a little bit differently. You use the F word there, and I, and I joke sometimes with my clients saying the F word in hockey is uh, is feeling sometimes, you know, like we have to understand what it is that we are feeling, um, again, with the self-awareness side, and then what to do with that feeling, right? Because we still want to harness it. We still want to be the best player we can be, and sometimes these feelings that we have aren't conducive um, to being the best player we can be. So it's how to manage those feelings. Did, would you feel you were a pretty good self-manager of, of whatever feelings you, you had? to be able to come out and be the, you know, the gladiator hockey player you needed to be? Uh, yeah, I think I was very good at it, to be quite honest with you. And, I, and without trying to sound like I'm bragging or anything, but I, I think I had a, a real good control of my uh, my mind and, and my feelings and, and that sort of thing. And I, uh, and I of course, I had my wife was, was, was a rock for me, and, and she was uh, well-educated. She went to college. I didn't. And... Uh, you know, she played uh, basketball for the Canadian Women's Junior National Team. So she she knew exactly what I was going through, and she was a she was a, a big big help in a, in a lot of ways because we'd have some conversations, and it was, it was fun. the funniest thing she ever said was, she goes, "I can tell when you're going to have a good game or not if you don't get knocked on your ass in your first shift." then I know you're going to play a real good game. <laughs> I thought, well, what does that mean? You know, like, I, I don't want to get knocked on my ass in the first shift. She goes, yeah, but if you do, you usually play really well. <laughs> so, anyway, it was kind of weird, but but she really helped me a lot. And, uh, you know, I read books before I get into coaching about uh, sports psychology, about, you know, uh, players and, and, and how to communicate and so on and so forth. I, I was a good communicator already but that just made it that much better i was able to throw things in there uh that that they could relate to better but after reading those books on a on a personal level when you talk about being able to manage your emotions or manage your feelings whatever word we want to use for that is i I think some young players out there get caught up in the idea of what they think uh, a hockey player is like maybe a hockey player doesn't ever get scared or a hockey player is never nervous or anxious or you know whatever those kind of negative feelings feelings are do you feel that you know can you speak to maybe having those and then being able to do something with them or like how did you handle a scenario where maybe you were feeling something that wasn't like a positive feeling that you'd, you'd want to get rid of 
Oh, there's no question. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, before every game, I think there was a, there was obviously butterflies and nerves and and uh, you know, but I don't know. I, I don't. I just you know, I would just lay down before and relax and breathe and and kind of just try to relax my mind a little bit and try not to think of everything that that we were about to uh, go out and do and then just more or less train my mind to kind of just let it go let let it let it go and then go out and do what you need to do and you know and, and try to reassure yourself that you know if you do that and you just go out and do what you're supposed to do that everything's going to work out just fine now it's not that easy and there's a lot of people that can't do that and you know they get like i i had a lot of players in toronto like a place like montreal you know it's not suited for everybody it, it, like some people can't handle the pressure of, of playing in a, in a big big hockey market like Toronto if you don't have thick skin you're not going to get through it and uh, fortunately I was the opposite I had thick skin and I, I was determined that I was going to prove everybody wrong and I fed I fed off that uh, uh, the fact that we were the biggest thing in, in town and and you know, uh, and I read the newspapers. I read them. I didn't care because whatever they said, that just fueled me to, to be better. Right. You mentioned visualization earlier that you're a little ahead of your time with that without even knowing it. Did, did, was that part of your pregame routine in the locker room? Is that something that would maybe take your mind off of, you know, some of the potential negativity and just get you focused on what it is you could do or wanted to do? Yeah, that was a big help. And uh, it was funny because I do it. We always had our pregame meal. Then you'd lay down, have a little nap, or, or just a, uh, <coughs> excuse me, a rest or something. And then when I get to the rink, I would do it again. And uh, that was something that really was powerful for me, anyway. And uh, <coughs> excuse me, um, like it, it kind of just eased my mind that, okay, I know who I'm playing against, what defenseman, what goalie, where to shoot how to get around that defenseman or the fact that he's not going to let me go wide. He's going to take that away from me. So I got to go to the other side of the ice and get lost. I mean, all those things you, <clears throat> you visualize when you get out there, all of a sudden you see yourself doing those things and then the success comes. And then, so yeah, that really, really was a big tool that, that helped me uh, going into a game. Yeah, when you've seen it before, and and uh, I mean, you can even there's there's scientific documentation on skill acquisition through visualization, right? Like you can you can actually become better by by training your brain to see it and to feel it. Uh, players players, I think amateur players don't quite get that that when you're in the moment, especially at the NHL level, things are happening so fast, and if you're trying to think and you're trying to react like you need to be responding in those situations you need to have seen it before you know and and like you said you, you've done that homework prior to you're that split second faster on the ice and that makes a heck of a lot of difference at that level <laughs> yeah absolutely and uh, you know the, the thing is the funny thing was I, you know you do all this visualization that i did and then you go out on the ice and then all of a sudden what you visualize that afternoon or before the game at the rink happen and then you come back to the bench and you're sitting there and you're going i mean this is kind of early in the stages when you're really doing it and you're thinking to yourself wow like i saw that this afternoon what i just did and then so then all of a sudden it becomes a lot more powerful knowing that you know right in here you you can visualize things 
that actually transform onto the ice and they, they actually happen. Yeah, they manifest. I mean, they, yeah. and plus, I mean, if you're a student of the game, you're going to see situations like situations happen uh, again. Like you, you're already saying, you know, this one defenseman <laughs> to, to, to wants to cut off the boards, you know, like, you know, he wants to cut off the board. So, you know how you're going to respond to that. So, I mean, uh, the tape leaves clues and your memory leaves clues. And guys who are students of the game, I think it, it, it definitely benefits when you when you put it in that toolbox with that visualization. That means a lot. You yeah. you mentioned earlier the peewee coach, and I want to get back to him because you you said that he explained things, that he took time to treat you like a person and to really kind of give you the reason why. And I think that's been one of the big evolutions of coaching is instead of just telling guys to, you know, drive wide, drive the net and have a high guy, like to explain why you want that to happen and to, and to explain those nuances of the game so there's a deeper level of understanding for the athlete. Do, do you Did you take that with you as a coach? Yeah, I did. And, uh, you know, I think, like, I, I, I mean – when I look back at it now, I mean, he was way ahead of his time. I mean, because in today's game, and even even a bit when I started coaching, but not as much, but in today's game, I mean, uh, like I always kind of use the analogy that when I played, when the coach said, you know, run through that wall, you would ask him how you did on your way back. <laughs> now, if you say run through the wall, it's like, well, wait a minute. Like, well, why do you want me to run through the wall? And... And what is that, how's that going to benefit me and benefit the team? And, and so they need to know that. So coaches today are a lot different, obviously, than they were when I played and probably even when you played. And, uh, you know, they have to understand that they have to explain everything to the players and, and the benefits of what they're telling them to do and, and what it's going to do for them and for the team. And, you know, and I mean, that's how it is today. And, and it, it, it's totally different. But it's the same at the same time, you know. the The message still gets across, but just in a completely different way than it did, you know, forty years ago. Yeah, I think what what the message today is allowing to do, uh, in my perspective, is it, is it allows more personality types to respond to whatever it is that's being coached. You know, like there was a certain type of player that did really well, I think, in, in the old school version. And now in this new age version, you still have the guys that are just going to get in line and do whatever they're told. You know, there's still those guys that exist, right? But now you're going to get those guys that are a little bit more, let's call them critical thinkers, or a little mm -hmm. bit more, you know, independent kind of uh, attributes to them. And, and they want to know why. They want to know these whys. And, and, and I think it's okay to tell these players why. Uh, you're going to get more out of them. And if you want to win, you want the most of everybody in that locker room. Yeah, and I think that's probably why, like Alan Andrews, like I said, was way ahead of his time because he was doing those things, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about uh, 50 years ago, yeah. not 40. And now that's how coaches approach things. And, uh, you know, I know that that was one of the things that I did as well when I started coaching because I took a lot of what he did and applied that to what I did. And it was kind of like... Uh, you know, deja vu when I, I started thinking about it and I started thinking about Alan Andrews and I started thinking about our little talks and stuff like that and I said, hmm, well, maybe that'll work with these guys. And, you know, sure enough, I started to do that and, uh, you know, lo and behold, I mean, uh, I had some unbelievable guys with character in, in the dressing room and, I, and, and talking to them, yeah, some of them would ask questions. And I love, I love that because then I can explain to them why uh, what I'm saying is 
something that's going to make them a better player, and it's also going to help the team win. That yeah. that I think that's one of the things that's the hardest thing to do is explain to a, a player how it's going to help him and the team. You know, because I think a lot of players want to know, well, how can you help me be better? Well, yeah, I can help you be better, but we need to be better, but we need the team to be better as well. So trying to trying to get both of those things through players is very difficult. And I think the coaches today, I think, do a pretty good job of that. Yeah. Uh, I think that I'm just going to pull that one spot out. You know, you, you're saying you as a coach want the player to understand how this is going to benefit him and the team. And this is a, a little, you know, tip a uh, piece of advice to players out there. When you approach a coach, it can't be all about you and how you're going to get better. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to win a coach's heart, say, Hey, you know, I do like, how does this, I want to be better because I want the team to be better. I want to help in this scenario to get, get us over the hump. I think that can't be forgotten about, even though, you know, uh, individuals want to get different places, but you're part of a team environment. That's what makes our sports great. And, and I think that you can't ever forget that when you're, when you're approaching somebody who can help you along the way to recognize that the team uh, is top of your mind as well as your own personal success. Yeah. And it's funny because I, I got one moment that I'd like to share. That was like when I was coaching in Charleston and we were at the top of the league. We were going to finish first overall in the regular season. And Ed Courtney, who played for me, he had played a little bit in San Jose, and uh, but then he had kind of fallen down the ranks uh, eventually to us in the ECHL in Charleston. And he scored 54 goals that year, had 110 points, and was like, you know, ran our power play. He was a big guy in our power play. The second to last game of the season, he two hands a guy across the face, gets suspended for the rest of the season and playoffs. And I remember going in the room, and I remember every single player sitting there with their heads kind of down. And we won the game, but the fact that Ed did what he did, they knew that he wasn't going to be around for the playoffs. And we had a team that, that had a good chance to win the championship, both the regular season and the playoffs. And I walked in, and I saw everybody kind of looking down and thinking, oh, you know, we're, you know, we're done now. We lost Eddie, and, you know, and I... The next day at practice, Ed obviously had been suspended and he wasn't there. And I went into the room and I said, uh, I sat I everybody down. I said, listen, I said, I understand that you guys are probably pretty bummed out about Eddie's suspension and, and you know, where are we going to get his offense from and everything else. And I said, all each individual in this room, you have to realize inside yourself and the guy next to you, that each one of you, all you need to do is score one more goal than what you probably think you can in the playoffs for us to win. And that will add up to the, the amount of goals that Ed would have scored. And everybody kind of started looking around and looking at the guy beside them and on the other side. And then I thought, you know what? We're going to win because they're all looking at each other going, yeah, okay, yeah, this can be done. And sure enough, you know, we went on and won the, won the championship in the playoffs without Ed Courtney, without a guy who scored 50-some-odd goals. And that was because the character that those guys had came out. And I don't think they even realized the character that they had until that moment. And a guy like Chris Hines, who was a defenseman from uh, Thunder Bay, we're, in the, we're up 3-1, to one. we're in the, the, the fifth game, and he said, 
you know, I'd, I'd block a, a, a shot with my face if I had to for, to win this game and get this over with. Sure enough, in the game, he went down to block a shot. It got deflected, hit him right in the nose, blood everywhere. He goes off the ice. Five minutes later, it comes out with cotton batting up both nostrils and finishes the game, and we win the game. So I think those moments are times where they look at each other and they realize, like, okay, yeah, we can do this. And uh, and it wasn't a, a big rah-rah thing or anything. It was just a simple thing that I said, you know, this is what we need to do, and, and you guys can do it. And look at the guy next to you, and, and everybody pull together. And then all of a sudden, like I said, I saw everybody going like this, and then I knew right then and there, I said, these guys get it, and they're going to they're gonna win. Yeah, a one-degree shift in perspective can take yeah. a big, take you different places on your journey, right? And I think that's probably what that was right there, which is pretty special. Uh, you mentioned the word character a couple of times, and this is something that I've been asking my guests of late. Uh, I love the word character. I love talking about it. I love talking about it as a skill, as something that we can develop and something we can improve. But I, my question is, when I say character, I something in my head comes up. Like there's there's traits that are involved in character. When I say character, when you say character, there's something that probably comes up too. If you were to if you were to break down character, uh, or your most desirable character traits um, of a guy in, on your team, what would the, what would in, what would embody character for you? Oh boy, there's a I mean there's a lot that goes into it. Uh, I don't know. I, I'm a believer that you develop character at a young age. And I think um, when I think of character, I think of a guy that's, first of all, and it doesn't just apply to hockey, it applies to life in general. I, I think it's, a, it's a, a person that's willing to go above and beyond uh, for the betterment of himself and others. Uh, I believe it's uh, someone that will, you know, risk his, his himself in order for other people that he is with, whether it's business, whether it's sports, to have success. And, I mean, if you get that and then you put the skill together with that character, then you've got an unbelievable person in the workplace or an athlete. And I, I don't think you can get any better than that. And I know people have asked me so many times about athletes versus, you know, say just a, a hockey player. And I, I've always said, okay, if I have two players and this guy just plays hockey and he's here and the other guy's right here, but this guy's a, a guy who's not only a real good athlete, but he's a real character guy. You give me this guy who's a character guy, I can make him a better hockey player than the guy that just plays hockey that is a little bit better than that guy. And, and I truly believe that because he, he has the character to make people around him better, to help them, and he's a good person, and he's willing to go to any length to be the best and to win. And to me, you can't teach those things. I, I don't think you can anyway. I, I believe that that's either in you or it's not. Well, you, you, can you... Help it, you can help it along a little bit and make them a little bit better at it, but I think to get the ultimate guy character wise i think that's something that you you're you develop over time uh growing up yeah you're learning it somewhere i mean at some point and i think yeah, i mean i can just relate to it 
Yeah, I can relate to it as myself. I mean, I think like being a parent taught me a lot of things. I think, uh, you know, running an organization after I got out of hockey taught me a lot of things. Like understanding for me in my head, like what it takes to be a leader and and to exude character and to actually be a role model helped me develop my character. You know, if I was just on my own and left to my own devices, I would have been a different person than it is now with the responsibilities that I have. So I know that as a 40-year-old man, I'm still continuing to grow what you're saying like a lot of times in the hockey world you kind of arrive like something inside of you that just sort of makes you um and and that thing that makes you stand out elevates your skill it elevates people around you but uh one of my biggest things right now as a coach is to try and get people to understand how important character is and that to really shine a light on on themselves inside so they can bring the best of themselves out for others to see yeah i think i think that the big thing you said there is i think that uh i mean Parenting will bring out a lot in you uh, because it's not easy, and and obviously marriage. I mean, you you know you've made a commitment, and you know you have responsibilities, and and I think uh, you know if you don't have any responsibilities, it's very difficult to figure out what the heck you need to do to be successful. But if you have responsibilities like raising children and being married and keeping a family together then I think your, your perspective on life becomes a lot better. And I think it's, it makes you a lot more susceptible to, to being a better leader and a better character individual. I, I, I mean, you know, and now at 61, uh, I'm probably at the best place in my life that I probably ever have as far as how I feel about my life and, and how I feel about myself and, you know, I mean, sometimes it might take less time than that. Sometimes it, it, it takes that long. And, and, you know, it took me a good, a good 35 to 40 years to really understand that, you know, what I needed to do to be at peace with my life and what I've done and what I've got ahead of me. Yeah. I agree. So, I mean, so I'm going to, I'm going to poke you a little bit and say, so maybe you are more on my side of the fence than you thought, because I mean, you yourself are saying that you have been improving and you are at a spot, spot now that you weren't before. And so you've kind of continued to grow these, these traits, maybe that you, that you exuded at 22 to 25, but now you're, you're living in more of them and you feel more at peace with, with that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, you, you've, you've lived through, you know, 40 years of your life, with, with a woman and with two children growing up and now they're grown men and they're, they're doing very successful. So you got to look at all those things and say, okay, we did a good job. Yeah. You know, yeah. when you're, when you're sitting down with your wife and you say, we did a pretty good job. They both got a, a good jobs. They're both successful. They're both well liked by, by all their buddies and they have lots of friends. And, you know, when I look at that and I go, you know what, you know, well, and I, when I say we, I, I mean more her than me because, you know, I wasn't around as much as she was. And she did one heck of a job raising those two boys. I mean, obviously I had a part in it, but, um, you know, it, it, it doesn't happen overnight. That's mm -hmm. what I, you know, I, I talk to people. I say, look, you know, you're going to go through a journey. You're going to go through a long journey. And you're going to have ups, downs. Good days, bad days, good times, bad times. It's how you deal with all those things. It's how you're, you're going to come out on the other side of that. And, you know, I know myself, I had a lot of uh, hurdles and, and challenges and I've overcome them. And, and that's why at, at my age right now, 
uh, I finally feel like, you know what? I'm really, really happy. I have a grandson now, my first grandchild, 16 oh, months. It's like, you know, everything comes full circle. And, and, you know, now I'm at probably the most peaceful place that I've been in my entire life. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I'm going to transition from being at peace to you being uh, a competitive SOB on the ice because uh, we haven't really talked about that. You know, like, you know, as a 76 goal scorer with almost 200 p- uh, penalty minutes in junior, uh, your, your, your year, your first full year in the NHL, 229 penalty minutes. I mean, you were a guy that found his way to the box. Um, you weren't afraid to throw the gloves. I mean, you weren't afraid to fight, but you were just, I mean, I, I don't know how would you classify yourself, but I was super competitive and super scrappy, I, 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 would, I would say. Um, was that something that you just, was that intentional in your mind or was that just the way you showed up and had to show up to play your best? Uh, no, that was, just, that was just me. That was the way I was. I, I just, you know, I, I got bullied a little bit when I moved to PEI when I was young and, and uh, you know, because I was, you know, the, the probably the best player on the hockey team at my age group and everything else. And uh, so at school, I got bullied a little bit, but, you know, not terrible. But but then I vowed to myself, I'm never going to let myself get pushed around. And, and that's why those penalty minutes happened because, you know, guys would cross-check you or slash you. And I, I wasn't going to take it. I wasn't going to let them run me out of the league and John Brophy reminded me that of that when I was in the WHA as a 19 year old that you know you you, you can't let them run it, run you out of the league you got to stick up for yourself you can't let someone else do it all the time uh, which I didn't do anyway and uh, no that was just me that was me I was I, I was at the point where like you know it was like no I no one's gonna push me around and, and, and run me out of this league I'm sticking around for a long time and you and you and you, you're not going to make me go away. And that, that was just the way I was as a person. Right. And, and that's the way I am with everything in life. It's like, I'm not going to let anybody take what I have away from me. Good for you. I, I know for me, I was a little bit more conscious about it possibly, but I remember like every time I made a level up, like you kind of, you needed to establish yourself. Like you said there, you know, like no one was going to push you out of the way. So you had to make a stance to let people know that, you know what? No, yeah, I, this is my line, right? And my line is here. And if you're going to challenge that line, then you're going to, I'm going to have to show up. And every year my, I had less fights kind of all the time, right? Because I didn't have to as much, right? Guys kind of figured yeah. you out and, and, and that was the way it worked for me. But I always was around the 100 pin mark myself just because I was a bit feisty too. But did, did you find yourself fighting less in that scenario uh, as, as you got on more in your career? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the, I mean, even the, the first year of 50 goals, I think I reduced my penalty minutes by like 100 or, or, or more. And... Uh, Part of that was, I think, you know, I, I think it was a little bit of uh, the team needed me more on the ice uh, because, you know, I was scoring goals. And, and obviously, if, if I didn't score goals on any particular night, there was a good chance that maybe we weren't going to win that game. We weren't a super powerful offensive team. So I knew that I, I needed to be on the ice. And, uh, but... You know, I played the same way. I didn't change the way I played, and I, I still fought. I still stuck up for myself. Um, I might have just did, did it in a different way, and I took a two, two-hander, two and I gave one back and took a two-minute penalty instead of five or seven. And yeah. <laughs> so I didn't spend as much time in the box, which allowed me to stay on the ice a little bit more and score more goals. 
Right. And you probably earned yourself a little more space probably, right? Just from the other fact of, you know, guys, guys didn't want to go there anymore. They knew what they were going to get and, and probably guys left you alone a little bit more potentially. Yeah, they did. I think they got tired of breaking their hands on my helmet and face. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, I think competitive is interesting. It's something that I definitely, you know, I want my kids, like my own personal three sons, like to exude it. I want my team, like when I'm coaching teams, to to be known as a team that competes. Part of the problem um, with competitiveness, especially at a younger age, is trying to balance that desire to compete and to be the best with the occasions where it doesn't work out for you and with the occasions where maybe you're not the top of the heap. And now you're maybe it's a body language thing. Maybe it's, you know, whatever that thing is, the other side of not getting the results that you want. How did you balance that um, one as a player? And then maybe it, how would you do that as a parent to, to talk to these guys about how to be able to balance that and be a good sport at the same time? Well, that it's a, you know what, that's very difficult. I mean, that, that is something that you've got to kind of tread very, very lightly when, when, especially when, when you're talking about your children, I think in my, in, in my estimation, and, and you know what, I think it's just, you know, you've got to be firm sometimes, but then sometimes you just got to be, you know, sit down and talk and, of course, when they're really young, you can't talk to them because they, they don't, they're not going to listen or they don't understand anyway. But they get to a certain age, and then all of a sudden, they understand what it's all about. And they understand what, what, you know, playing for a team is all about and, and what life is about. And then, then you can sit down and have conversations and explain things to them why, you know, maybe they shouldn't do this or they should do this instead because it'll get them better results. And... Uh, you know, but it, it's hard, I don't know, it's very, very difficult to uh, to teach someone uh, character or competitiveness. See, I, I, I really believe, yeah, you can, you, can, you can do it a little bit, but I think someone has to have that in their DNA at the beginning in order for you to increase that a little bit and make them that much more competitive. And they're, they're like, you take Olympic athletes, um, you know, they, they're, I'm pretty sure if you looked at and studied Olympic athletes in, in different sports, uh, individual sports, team sports, they all had that when they were young. And then, of course, as they went on and got better and better and became uh, that good, then all of a sudden then they had access to uh, uh, coaches and, and uh, the, the uh, scientific guys and the... Hmm. Uh, and, and then, and then all, of, all of a sudden they become that much better. I mean, they have to because they're, they're, they're Olympic athletes. And I don't think NHL players or football players or any kind of athletes are any different than Olympic players. And uh, they get into sports science and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but I, I think it's something that you, you have in you when you're, you're young. And then, uh, yeah, there's different ways to develop it. There's different ways to bring it out of different people. Everybody's different. There's always a different approach for each guy. Like you have three boys. I bet you all three of them, they probably there's probably a different way with each one of them to get the best out of them. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with what you're saying there. I mean, the, the one thing, maybe I'll paint a little different story. So like my one, my middle son, for instance, like ultra competitor, right? Like in anything, right? Brushing your teeth, he wants to do it the best, you know, like and be the fastest or whatever the case may be. And when it comes to him on the ice, um, 
he's having a hard time balancing that competitiveness when, like I said, when things don't go well, right? Like he kind of comes unraveled when things don't go well. So him, I mean, and we're talking about a kid who's 10, right? I mean, so like there's an emotional maturity and there's going to be an evolution with that. Um, but right now he's having a hard time understanding. Like he thinks if he's, for him not to get unraveled when things go badly, like his story to himself and to me is that, well, then I just can't be competitive. You know, like that's how he's matched it up. Cause, cause when I am competitive, right? Like I care so much. And because I care so much, then this is going to happen to me. Right. So he's, he's yeah. having a hard time finding that balance right now. And, and I'm just trying to help him try and figure that out. Right. Because, um, you know, we want it to be a little bit even keel, but we love the fact that he's, he's competitive. I think that's a great trait to have. Oh, I, I, I mean, I, I would never try to take the competitiveness out of a 10 year old in any way, shape or form. I would just, I mean, in my the way I would uh, approach it is I would try to, okay, mold everything around that competitive. The, the last thing you ever want to do is take competitiveness out of anybody. And that, that's not just in sports, that's just in life. But at the same time, you have to smooth the edges, I think, a little bit. And there's got to be a happy medium there somewhere where, yeah, they can still be ultra competitive, but they don't lose it when things don't go their way. and. You know, you, you, you go back to a, a baby. You go back to my, like my grandson's 16 months. I, I see him, like he's trying to do something, lift something that's just too heavy to lift. And all of a sudden he starts screaming and, and getting mad. And I'm going, okay, you know, I like that. But at the same time, he's going to have to learn at some point that he can't do everything and everything's not always going to go his way. And uh, But I love the fact that you know, he gets angry when he can't accomplish something. And, and to me that, you know, don't, I wouldn't take that out of anybody. I would just try and smooth the edges a little bit and make it so that there's, you know, that, that moment where they say, Oh, okay. I'm just about to go over the edge. I've got to pull myself back a little bit and and they'll figure it out with, with, with the help of parents and coaches and so on that they'll figure it out. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, again, compete, comp- like compete. I, my, my spring hockey team, I named it the compete. Like, I, I, I can't think of a more valuable trait, like a human trait, uh, valuable for life, valuable for sport. Be competitive, right? And then just figure out how to balance that, how to be a good sport, how to be respectful, you I mean, in those environments. But, like, that compete is a way to really make yourself stand out as a player and as a person in whatever it is you want to want to accomplish. Uh, there's no question. I mean, uh, if you don't have the ability to compete and, and want to be the best, uh, then you're never going to. Uh, it's, it's pretty simple. You're never going to be right. the best lawyer. You're never going to be the best hockey player. You're never going to be uh, the best accountant. You're never going to be the best at anything if, if you don't have that in you. And, uh, you know, you may, be, you may be above the middle, but you're never going to be the best. Yeah. So, I mean, unless you have that competitive juices flowing through your veins then then that's never going to happen and uh you know i, I that, that's what i love about you know when i'm when i was coaching was i could see the competitiveness in, in the in the ones that i kept on my team and then i had some guys that were really skilled players but they didn't have the competitiveness so i had to let them go yeah. you know or trade them because they, they weren't going to help our hockey team and so I mean, that's the way I look at it, too. And I, I it's just a, a thing that has to be softened and, and, and uh, around the edges and, and, and controlled. 
a 10 year old doesn't have the capacity to do that yeah. by himself with yeah. help by the time he's 14 or 15 years old i'm pretty sure he'll have it figured out yeah no i agree uh Speaking of the best, who we'll get back to uh, maybe even more specific hockey question here. Who is the best player you ever played with? Oh well, I played with a lot of good players. I mean, All Star games, Team Canada. I mean, let's say teammates. Players. Teammates. Um, the best player I ever played with or against, and I think maybe the best all around player. Unfortunately, we just talked about it. I don't think he had that drive that we talked about was Alexander McGillman. I mean, this guy was probably the most talented player I ever played with. Uh, he could go from a standstill to full speed in two strides and handle the puck like nobody else at, at top speed, do things that I've never seen anybody else do. But he, I, I don't believe he had that, that drive in him, that, that, you know, that I want to be the best player on earth. Right. I, I mean, as good as he was, I think he could have been better. Right. Which is scary to think that he could have been better than what he was. But, you know, but guys like Wayne Gretzky, they had that. You know, they, they had that competitiveness in them. And, uh, you know, even another guy, Mario Lemieux, was probably one of the best players that I ever played against. And I, but... I mean, I know he had injuries and, and obviously the cancer and everything else. But I, when I watched him play, maybe it was because he was big and lanky and everything, but it didn't seem to me like he had that total competitiveness and drive to him either. He probably did. Otherwise, he never would have gotten to where he did but, and yeah. did what he did. But it, it, it appeared to me that he didn't, but he probably did. Right, yeah, that killer instinct, right? That kind of elevates and and pushes you, pushes you yeah. forward. Mario Lou is my guy, and I think they called him the gentle giant. I just, I just loved him because of his skill acquisition and like his ability to beat D men one on one and goalies one on one was just like nothing I'd ever seen before. So I was in love with with him and his game. Uh, but he did. He was a guy who made everything look easy. Like nothing ever looked hard for him. You know, and I think when yeah, guys. Yeah, when things don't look hard, it looks like, well, he's never been challenged, so maybe he's not gritty, right? I, I, I assume he had to be. He, he was so big, and everyone was all over him. But, um, yeah, there's such – I just noticed you played with Dennis Savard, too, and I didn't know if that would if, – if his name would maybe come up because he was, he was a heck of a well, player, too, and he was in his prime kind of when you were with him there. Yeah, he, he was pretty talented. I mean, uh, you know, he could do a lot of things, but i never seen anybody do as much as, as McGillney. I mean uh, – right. This guy was an incredible, uh, you know, and then not to mention that, I mean, just uh, hockey. And then I think he was a great athlete because after he, he or at the end of his career, when I was in Buffalo or, or I mean, my career, sorry, uh, he took up golf. And he'd never played golf before in his life. And he was a left-hander. And within a year, like he was a two handicap. Yeah, well, crazy. who the heck does that? Yeah. You know, except for a guy who's driven and a guy who's a great athlete. And, and that's what exactly what he was. That's awesome. Okay, two questions to let you go here. I know we got a, a stop time. So I, I have a group called Up My Hockey that I, that I let people know who I'm going to interview. And if they want to ask any questions, I, I let them ask. And I thought we had a good one today. So I'm going to put it on the screen here. And it's from an ex-teammate of mine, actually, Paxton Schulte. He played pro for a few years. And you might even rem remember him. He was part of the uh, Flames, I believe, organization back in the day. I don't know if, if you were a coach there then or not. I should have looked that up. But a pro hockey player nonetheless. 
and I played with him in uh, Spokane. And he uh, he now has a son that's going through it, and he's a, he's into coaching. And he says, "What are the most important hockey and life skills that you think should be taught throughout all youth hockey?" So he, what he meant by that was like from the novice level all the way up to midget. Um, what's one thing that we can teach these players that's going to serve them in in life and in uh, and in hockey? Well, I think I think we covered a lot, sure. <laughs> a lot yep. of them already, and um, you know, I, I think to be the best that you can be every day, you know, whether whether it's on the ice, whether it's be, whether it's at school, uh, be be the best person you can be every single day, and uh, uh, on the ice, be the best player, uh, be the hardest working player, uh, be be the best person at school, help people. You know, go out of your way to make someone feel comfortable by helping them and that sort of thing. And uh, you know, I, I think if you, I think if you teach them all those kind of things, I think that's going to uh, translate into them being very good young men and women going forward uh, as they as they get older. I, you know, I, I can't emphasize how much how important it is to teach a person to be n- not just competitive but be a good person as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. Like, um, in other words, treat others like you'd like to be treated. Sure, the golden rule, right? And I think what's yeah. a beautiful thing about team sports is that um, it teaches that accountability to others, right? That your example, yeah. we already touched on your example, that matters. You're accountable to other people in that locker room. You want them to be good so yeah. you can make yourself better and your team better. And I think there's a lot of virtues to uh, being involved in the team sport. I know hockey really teaches those things well. Um, and it also teaches it well just when, it, when a coach puts emphasis on it. So I know where yeah. Paxton's coming from with that, right? If we can, if we can teach that at a young age. My last, my last question, um, Rick, is, uh, is you know, we, we, we touched on your, on your 50-goal seasons. We didn't get into all of your career. And that's kind of I, – I, I like not having these be typical hockey interviews. You know, I know you probably answered those questions 100 times, so I thought maybe we'd go in a little different direction today and hope you had a good time. But I do want to bring it back to goals. You scored a ton of goals. I mean, that's kind of what you were known for. I think that's what you took pride in. What is the one goal that is most memorable for you from from the, all the goals that you scored? Well, I mean, I got two of them, actually. I, I think my first NHL goal. I mean, I, Everybody remembers his first NHL goal if he played in the National Hockey League. I mean, it's it's such a special night. Uh, you know, you get the puck and the, the trainer puts tape around it, writes on what it is, and then you get it, you know, on a plaque. And then, of course, uh, the first 50-goal season uh, becoming, which I didn't even know until I got to about 45 goals that I would be the first lead to ever score 50 goals. And I went, like, really? Like, I mean, all those great players that played here for – 65 or 70 years whatever it was and nobody had done it that was very special as well so i think both of them are pretty equal uh because you know your your goal if you're a hockey player is to get to the nhl and you know i got there and then you score your first goal that's that's the next step and then you move on from there and then of course later on uh three years later i or four years yeah three years later I end up being the first Maple Leaf to score 50 goals, which to me, I was so humbled and honored uh, that I was the first person that it was incredible. Yeah, that's uh, that's great. I mean, to me, that's actually, I mean, it is insane how long that how long that yeah. team's been around for. I mean, obviously, it's a huge accomplishment, right? I mean, 50 goals is not an easy thing to do, but you would well, just think, think on the Toronto Maple Leafs that they would they would have had that done again. Yeah, and you I, know? I still think it is the standard today. I think everybody looks at 50 goals. If you can score, and I, you know, one of the things I, I do believe too is if you're, 
anybody who's multiple 50 goal scorer did it like you know there's guys that did it one year maybe you know whatever and, and never did it again never came close but if you did you could play in any area you take rocket richard put him in the game today put him in the 80s he'd find a way to score 50 goals i, I i'm convinced of that yeah and, i am too i am too and you know what was actually amazing to me is um and this may sound funny, but like when we went out together on that alumni trip, and I know you guys do a lot of that, uh, but I was one of the youngest guys on the ice. So it was me and Nick Antropoff, I think were, were some of the youngest guys from the alumni side. But to see like guys like yourself, and how old are you right now, Rick? 61. Yeah, 61. 61 years old, ripping around the ice. Ally Afraidy, years younger than you, but like still an, an older yeah. man, gentleman out there, still flying around the ice with ease, you know, like... Um, Guys, you know, and guys with with great hands doing amazing stuff. Like, yes, the game is faster, and yes, these guys are really talented now. But I mean, you you take Rick Vive from from the '80s and you put him in today's game, you know, at the same age. I mean, you're gonna be you're gonna have just as big of impact, if not more. You mean like it's a uh, uh, it's just the way it is. And you that that era was really good hockey. My era was really good hockey, and this era is really good hockey. It's just everyone kind of evolves different differently, right? With the genesis of the game, skill development, and all that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, if I was playing today, obviously, at, at that age, uh, coming in at 18, I, I would have been training differently my whole life. That, right. Because these guys do. So, you know, that all kind of comes together. So that's why I think that a, a player in any era could do the same thing in any other uh, decade or era, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Yeah, no, I agree. I enjoy those games. I love playing the game still. Uh, I love shooting. I love scoring goals. That's one thing I still love doing is scoring goals. <laughs> All the boys always tease me that, you know, your arms must be sore. You took like about 40 shots. I said, well, you know what? I got to shoot 40 to score four or five goals now <laughs> as opposed to 10 to score that many when I was playing. So, yeah. you know, it's all good. No, that's awesome. And you know what? I mean, I think that's, I mean, it's, it's total transparency by you to say that. I mean, because that competitiveness, it did come out in those alumni games that I watched. Do you mean yeah. like, like you're, you're still playing and you're still playing for keeps? And you I mean, that's what you can't change that. You can't turn that off when it, when it's inside, you know? And I think that's, no. that's true colors for you. And uh, obviously anyway. it got you. <laughs> yeah, right. It got you a lot of places. So, Rick, I'll let you go. I know we, we said we we're going to, uh, we we're going to cut her off here, but I mean, really appreciate you. Amazing guest. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I know there's going to be a lot of value in it for for those who uh chose to to listen well i appreciate it jason and it was great to see you in vancouver hopefully we get that opportunity again maybe next uh next winter yeah no for sure and best of luck with the book everybody out there obviously go go get catch 22 lots of great stories and from uh a legendary leaf still the only guy to ever score 50 so um get it while that while that uh while you still have that title because i think a lot of people think austin matthews might be coming up to uh to, to sit beside you there with that one i'm pretty sure he will and, <laughs> uh, but that's fine i mean you know i i felt bad for him last year when the pandemic took that opportunity away from him because um if it was an injury that's that's part of the game that's you know you understand that but a pandemic took the opportunity for him to reach that that record and maybe tie it or break it and uh I really felt bad for the kid because uh, it it was of no fault of his, yeah. and uh, so. But you know what? He's got a lot of years left in him, and he's a, he's a heck of a player and one hell of a goal scorer. I mean, the, his shot is is unbelievable. I'm pretty sure he'll get there.
Cool. Well, I'm sure you'll be in the building and in attendance, and that'll be a big day for yeah. for all these fans. And and as Gretzky says, right? I mean, they're all meant to be broken. And you know, if if we're trying to grow the game, you kind of do want that to happen at some point. And hopefully, you're there to see it. I think that'd be a good good day for everybody. It would be yes. Awesome. Well, uh, Rick, thanks so much again. Um, best of luck with your show. I know you got Jared Bednar coming on. It's so funny. We didn't even really talk about that, but you coached Jared Bednar. You also played yeah. with Dane Jackson, two, uh, two past guests here of mine. And I know you got him coming on your podcast. So best of luck with Jared. He's an awesome interview. And uh, we'll, we'll touch base again soon, man. All right. Thank you very much, Jason. Thank you so much for being here today and sticking around to the end. I really thought that that conversation really picked up steam in the second half. I, I enjoyed where the conversation went and starting to talk about character and leadership and work ethic and standards and, and all these all these intangibles that I love to talk about. And hearing Rick uh, talk about it so passionately is, uh, you know, is is valuable, right? Because it's not a cookie-cutter conversation. It's not a typical interview. And I think for you Leaf fans out there, for sure, you saw a different side of Rick than probably what you've normally heard from him in the past. So it was awesome for for us to debate uh, that topic of character. I think character, for me, I I didn't hardline it in that conversation, but I think Rick was out of one side of what he was saying, saying that yes, we can evolve and, and you can change your character and you can grow it. And then the other side, he said it a couple of times, I think you are what you are. And I do think that that's an interesting stance because there are lots of people out there that believe you are who you are. And, you know, I'm not here to argue that point. That's just a reality that a lot of people believe that to be true. I happen to be somebody that doesn't believe that to be true. And I think that we can grow it and I think that we can change it. And there's some amazing redemption stories out there from people who have maybe gone down a wrong road and have turned around and become different people by choice with intention. Now, for most of us listening to this right now, uh, we, we are probably not what we would say bad people in quotes, right? This isn't about, I don't think character is about bad or good, but it's about recognizing the fact that it is something we can make a difference in when we apply intention to it. Uh, When we consciously make a choice about who it is, one, we are, not the choice, but recognizing who it is we are, one, and then recognizing who it is we might like to become, two, now there's a bridge there. We can start building that bridge from one to the next. and, And the character piece is so relevant in hockey and you hear it time and time again in these interviews that people want it they look for it meaning management meaning organizations meaning coaches they want it in their locker rooms so this is something that is so desired why aren't we working on it i mean i work on it with my clients i work on it with you know my boys at home i work on it personally Uh, this is something that i think is a tool it is a skill it can be grown but you have to apply intention you have to be self-aware enough on where it is you want to improve and where you want to get better so athletes out there um my goodness it's available to you right um oh this is a great segue which (laughs) wasn't meant to be but to my character course i've developed a character course for young athletes to apply some perspective on who they are and who they can become and give them a path for how to get there with intention, with practice. We don't work on character just during a hockey game or just during a practice. We work on it all the time. So whether you're in lockdown right now or whether you're in school or not in school or who knows where you're at, 
every day is an opportunity to get better at that, to become a better person that's going to allow you to become a better athlete. So yeah, get in there. It's at upmyhockey.com. It's called Building Championship Character. Uh, it's one of a lot of resources. Well, actually, there's not many resources out there on character, to be honest with you, of like treating it like a skill, like something you can improve and grow. So uh, jump in and take advantage of it. Uh, I've known, uh, I've noticed a ton of difference in my clients uh, when we talk about this as a skill, uh, and in the other people that, I, that I'm around and that I'm working with. This is a this is a game changer. Uh, it's a game changer on your journey. It's a game changer on where you want to get to, and it's also a game changer on the legit longevity of how long you're going to be able to stay uh, in the sport. Not to mention that I mean it, this this goes uh, with you wherever you go in life. Uh, Nathan Gerby said in, uh, in the short interview we had, which is going to come, come out live, we're going to redo the interview, but he was uh, talking about, we're building the house that we're living in. And I thought that was like super powerful. Uh, we're building the house we're living in. Whether you're 44, 54, or 14, you're building that house on a daily basis. And I think when we start thinking of it that way, uh, you know, we start approaching our decisions uh, a little more consciously and, and we can make different, different choices. Uh, in the moment. So uh, to everyone out there, I hope you enjoyed the episode. It was great chatting with Rick. Uh, love the character conversation. And if you, uh, if you got anything from this at all, please share. Uh, please, please let your other inner circle know, the people who you would think would find value. And uh, do what you can on social media to help grow the podcast. Um, I'm in it here for, for a community, for everyone who wants to get better and to become the best athlete and best human that they can be. So share the wealth. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, play hard and keep your head up.